Hey there, Knit a Spell listeners, and welcome to episode 31, Knit a Spell's Best of Guests 2021. Light from Lantern presents Knit a Spell. I'm magical maker, Katie Rempe. And I'm the maker of magic, James Devine. Join us as we stitch together the symbiotic relationship between crafting and the craft. I'm so excited to bring you this extra special episode where we're featuring some of the most amazing clips from all of our guests of 2021 so far. Let's start with episode five, The Magic of Fiber. On this episode, we had on Amanda Manis from Mando Bug Crafts. She is a wonderful spinner and crochet designer, among other things. And what we discussed in this particular episode was the magical qualities of fiber, specifically pet fur. One of Amanda's many offerings is spinning your pet's fur into yarn. That's right. I said she spins yarn from your pet's fur. In this clip, Amanda shares tips and tricks on how to collect fur from your furry friend if this might be a service that you're interested in one day. So a lot of the customers that come to me aren't really sure of the technical side, right? They are not mm. really sure like what goes into spinning a yarn and what makes a final product something that's usable. So they usually leave that up to me and they and I start with the recommendation of, you know, 50% wool, 50% dog fur, depending on the breed, we can adjust to what we want our end product to be. Um, so that's mostly where I'm at. But I did make bats for a friend who wanted to spin her own pet's fur. And she's a fiber artist. So she came at me with, hey, I've got these mohair locks and I've got this Angora and I got some, you know, this wow. sparkly Angelina. I want to glitz it up. And so you can be really creative if you kind of have a like a foundation knowledge um, you can, mm. it can be really fun. Um, and I know like right off the bat, like just thinking about dog fur in a yarn is, is disgusting to some people, honestly. <laughs> right. Cause I mean, dogs shed all over your house where you don't want it to be. And you're like, uh, gross. I don't want this, but you don't think that when you pet your pet, right? Absolutely. You're not like, Ooh, gross. You are so gross. <laughs> what happens to hair and fur when it comes off the body? I don't know. That's I think when the change happens. <laughs> If it's attached to the animal, then it's wonderful Fine. and where we bury our face in it. Yes, the, minute, the, the minute it becomes a dust buffalo that is collected under the couch, it's somehow yes. gross. But when you that's pull no... your face off of the cat and it's on you still, that's unacceptable yeah. suddenly. <laughs> but you're that's a, such a great distinction because right, actually that is still like a fiber is a fiber. Mm -hmm. I mean, has anyone ever seen raw goat, like shorn goat? That is the opposite of clean or cute. Lanolin does not have the most dis wonderful odor either. No, <laughs> oh, no. no. I, I think it comes down to like your expectation and control of the fiber, right? When you find it, when you don't expect it, you're like, uh, is this even clean? I don't want this on me. But having that control, having it spun in, you can clean it at the end and it no longer smells and you expect it to be there. So it's not as bad as you might expect, but also you're purposefully taking the best, right? So you're not just getting what was left over on the ground. You're going for those undercoats, those softer furs. Mm. And so it can be as high of a quality as you're looking for. So, uh, yeah, ah. it's, there's some there. Um, if you look up the term chingora is where you'll see some of the 100% dog furs that are 
kind of along the lines of like Angora. Um, I'm doing an order now that's using an Alaskan Malamute and you'll see that spun 100% by itself a lot because it is so soft and fluffy. If you look at these dogs, they're like white poof balls. And I honestly could spin this fur by itself. It is so similar to wool that I wouldn't need to blend it if I didn't want to, but I still recommended it to this customer. But yeah, there's there's a lot that that it's not as disgusting as it seems, although the spinning part can be, because (laughs) if if you don't get that fur clean, Hmm. I mean, I've come, I've come across some pretty nasty things. So Um, you're pretty much smelling like, like, you're smelling like like wet dog. Oh yes. Wet dog. (laughs) And like, especially if I get uh, hair that's been shaved, it's better to get it groomed and brushed off. But if you get Mm. it shaved, sometimes they'll nick like a cut you know, oh. and, and like you get a little scabbies, that's Ooh. probably the worst. <laughs> so it's not all clean, but in the end it can be really clean and luxurious. Oh man. And, and, and I mean, it's really, it's really what it is to the maker though. Cause that's another thing that's interesting. It's not a cheap thing to have your dog's fur turned into yarn because I am hand spinning it. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of technique and effort. Um, but if the customer didn't buy that yarn, it is meaningless to everybody else. That right. is exactly the whole thing here. Yes, it's the the making part of it, the intent behind it, the meaning of the fur yeah. you used. Like it may not be meaningful to someone else, like you said, but it's priceless to the person who right. had the meaning to it. Um, again, just like making a hand knit sweater versus buying one. Yeah, it's you. Uh, that's amazing, and it is so worth it. It's worth every penny. I mean, if I'm in it, I mean, everyone takes their. I'm sorry, not everyone. There's a lot of people who will take their dog for like life-saving treatments that are super expensive. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's not about the expense. It's about the love. It's about how much you care for your animal mm-hmm. and for your companion. A lot of times they're, you know, and for a lot of us who practice, you know, more the metaphysical realm or or witchy realm, they we look at them as our spiritual companion, as our um, you know, as someone that like, there's a, there's a certain wisdom when you look into certain dogs eyes or cats eyes, they look at you kind of like there's a human in there looking back. Have you ever mm-hmm. known some dogs that are like that? So when you have a pet, when you have a, really it's beyond a pet, when you have a spiritual companion in the form of a dog or a cat or whatever it is, there's something priceless about that. I think it's amazing. Let me ask you this. So for everyone listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I definitely want that. Like I have this big fluffy dog and Mm -hmm. their fur would be amazing. Should they start brushing and collecting the fur now? And what Mm. would be your advice for someone who has a beloved pet and already knows like I want something made out of that pet? Yeah, absolutely. That is the best way to go about it is to brush and collect the softest, finest fibers. Most pets, most dogs is what I'm mostly working with, although it could be cats as well. They'll have two coats. They'll have a soft undercoat and an outer coat that's kind of straighter and more coarse hairs. If those get into the mix, when you spin that fiber, they stick straight out and they are the most prickliest fibers. Um, (laughs) I've had some people be concerned that I blend with wool, like, oh, wool's a prickly fiber. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I, I use very soft merino with these blends. More often than not, the scratchiness factor comes from those guard hairs from the collection. So I've spun um, dogs that have been shaved 
and underbrushed. And the best fiber that I've produced has been from people who take that underbrush coat and they slowly collect that fur. And it does, it's a time consuming, dedicated thing, but it, it absolutely is worth it. And you'll have something that you're really excited about. Yeah. Amazing. The whole thing is time and dedication. Again, it goes back to the theory that something that is joyful is something that takes time to get to whatever the end product is. It takes time to collect the fur and then have it spun and then, or cleaned and brushed and then spun. You know, I mean, there's a lot of steps in between even that, let alone then the knitting of the, the item in the end. Absolutely. Oh, and it's one so other magical. thing, <laughs> it's best to keep it in a paper bag because um, it is a natural fiber. It can, certain breeds can felt. So if you keep it in plastic and it gets hot and it gets agitated, it will mat to itself in there and then it's no longer spinnable. Oh, so good paper advice. bag is the best way to go. In this clip, Amanda shares a touching story about someone who was the recipient of a knitted hat made from a companion's fur. Check it out and maybe pull out the tissue box. So you Smart. see this, these themes of loyalty. Uh, you see themes around the dog of um, protection, mm. of um, you know, fair warning, of, of companionship, of love, unconditional love. Yeah. So these are things that you can weave. Let's say that you have a big Malamute, right? And he's a young, healthy Malamute. And, you know, kind of a big dog, definitely need brushed all the time. Mm. You'll have tons of fiber. <laughs> More than you I need. Mean, <laughs> you could knit something for someone who needs protection or who could use companionship, even though it's your own, you know, your own dog, you could do that and have it as a gift for someone. What a precious gift. Absolutely. Um, Especially if that so, person knows the dog, right? Oh, I have a story right. about that. Yeah. One of my Tell customers, us. she had a, her neighbor has a golden doodle that she used to walk for him mm -hmm. and he got cancer oh. and he lost his hair and she sent me in the pet's fur and I spun it into yarn and she knit him a hat once he had lost all his hair. Oh right? my God. <laughs> So definitely it's out there. And when we talk about spinning your dog or cat's fur into yarn, I mean, mm -hmm. that is so magical. Do you ever feel, Amanda, do you ever have like a magical experience or a a connection as you're spinning? It must be very meditative. I think, yeah, spinning in general, it for me definitely is a very meditative process. It's this slow, repetitive movement that your body gets used to, which mm. kind of frees up your mind. And so spinning in general, I love for that reason. And I think it can be very magical for that reason alone. Um, but then throwing in something like those animal fibers, even if it wasn't my pet, um, just knowing that, that the not back to the knowledge is power, knowing where mm. it came from, knowing what it's for and how how much it means to the person I'm making it for it is why I'm able to do it. Like I said, some of this fur isn't clean and there's some unpleasant processes to it, but it's the end result. Mm -hmm. It's, it's what you're providing for someone. And there's nothing more special than that. Although Amanda is still currently booked for custom spinning orders, you can sign up for her newsletter at mandobugcrafts.com to be among the first to know when her orders open up again. You can also find her amazing knit and crochet designs there as well. 
On episode 8, Magic of Hand-Eyed Yarn, we had on Emerald and Rebecca, the owner of Stardust Fiber Studio. All of our guests have been impactful. However, I personally think back to this episode, specifically this moment, very often. Take a listen to this inspiring story that Emerald so graciously shared with us. Um, As someone who, you know, used to work with yarn stores and knitters in general and whatnot, I'm dying to know if you have any fun or interesting stories you'd like to share about, you know, dyeing yarn or, you know, just your business in general, interacting with customers and whatnot. I like what you did there, Katie. I'm dying to know. That was very cute. That was clever. Yeah, it was on purpose for sure. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. What's a significant spiritual magical experience? We want to know. So we had a customer that wanted a custom order um, specifically for um, Aphrodite, but for more of the ocean aspects and not so much the pinks and all of that that you generally see. Um, And they kind of explained to me what they were looking for. And I really sat down with Aphrodite and um, our color board and really tried to connect. And as I was dying, um, I kind of felt the, the knock at the door of of Aphrodite's energy and so um I opened the door and she kind of stepped in and helped and that was such an experience because I mean I've worked with Aphrodite for years and I have an altar in my room but to have her step into something like dying yard of all things but knowing that it was going to a devotional piece for someone that's um followed her for years and years and years and I, uh, we, I, we, I keep switching. <laughs> we started singing and just, it ended up being, it was like eight skeins of yarn. So it was just pan after pan of just singing. And the plan that I had in my head and what the end result was were completely different. But when we finished and delivered it to the customer and explained the entire story, they just broke down in tears and thanked me. After like explaining the entire thing of what happened and it ended up being so much more meaningful having the entire, um, the entire event of what happened and having that interaction was both meaningful for me as being able to give that to them mm-hmm. as it was for them being able to receive it. And so me as a, as a priestess, that's so important to me to be able to still not only be a yarn dyer, but be a priestess in that way. So that's right. probably my favorite time I've ever died. <laughs> I kind I of emotional. That. Sorry. Oh, beautiful. Yes. No, live in it. Live in it. Yes. <laughs> this idea oh, of God. here we are, Emerald making custom yarn, hand dyed in a ritual space with one of the pathways to that is song, mm-hmm. right? Can you imagine like knitting something with yarn that was made while this artisan, while this craft person was singing and channeling Aphrodite into it? Just stunning. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you can hear it. I'm sure you can hear the skeins sing. I'm sure. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I moved. I'm <laughs> I'm misty-eyed over it. That's such a cool 
idea. It's such an amazing, beautiful image I have in my mind. Gosh, yeah. And getting into like that flow dying state. I mean, as um, a watercolor painter myself, you know, it's you, sometimes you just get into that thing where, you know, if someone were to interrupt you, you'd be like, oh, where was I? And why did you do that? Um, so that kind of seems like a similar state of what you might've been going through. That's really incredible. I never even thought about doing that, like, you know, with, with someone that you might be inviting in to help, you know, that's incredible. Like a channeling. Yeah. To draw down a deity or a God form or something and then mm. do the work and then offer that work up. Mm. Like what a gift. I don't think you're charging enough. I'm kidding. <laughs> Another great thing that came from this episode was the birth of a new product. Emerald and Rebecca describe what is now known as the Blocking Brew Bags, which can now be purchased on their website, stardustfiberstudio.com, in five different varieties, depending on your intent. Listen to this glorious idea be birthed right on our show. I would really love to put together um, like an add-on of like a blocking herbalism set mm -hmm. where we send like the little like tea bag type of thing where you can put the herbs in it for that water that mm -hmm. way you don't get herbs everywhere in your yarn because that would be a mess but that way you can have that intention in there mm -hmm. um it could be stones exactly and... we can have it all in there yep. oh that was brilliant awesome. yeah um brilliant that will be i absolutely I also have been thinking about this recently. I actually just had a pattern come out where um, I made this design for my dog. So mm -hmm. talking about knitting something <laughs> with intent. Um, and I was also thinking like, oh yeah, blocking water. That's like another way to add layers uh -huh. into it. And I was like, oh, well, even if you had like allergies, who's to say you can't do like full moon blocking water, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, I got to go around and get some glass jars because that is going to be my jam. Full moon and new moon blocking waters. Uh -huh. And if anybody doesn't have allergies, you can sort of add to there, but, uh, or even like putting crystals around it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Another thing. Blocking water tea bags. I <laughs> love blocking water tea bags. Yeah, right. <laughs> Genius. Before we head into our next episode, I wanted to let you all know that there's a new tarot themed yarn collection coming from Stardust Fiber Studios. Dropping on November 3rd, you can find the Mysteries of the Arcana Part 1 coming to stardustfiberstudios.com. In Episode 12, Fearless Knitting, we welcomed Olive Knits designer Marie Green to reflect on how she learned how to knit back in a time when help wasn't easily accessible and how this has made her a brave knitter. It leads me to wonder if having so much information available has made us fearful to mess things up, even in areas that we're trying to grow in. Marie has some really amazing insight in this clip. Take a listen. Like I am one of those people with sort of that boring story where my grandma taught me to knit when I was a kid. Um, she came to town, she lived far away, and that was back in like long distance phone call days, like the olden days. Mm, yep. <laughs> um, and she just, I think, noticed that I was creative and kind of had a restless spirit. And there's something about knitting that is really perfect for people that need to be doing something all the time. And so she taught me and then had the audacity to drive back home to Tennessee where she was living and then leave me basically like some magazines from the 40s. And some Ooh. scraps of paper and like a, enough yarn just to be dangerous, but not enough to like really do it much with. And 
uh, and an obsession. Like I definitely became obsessed immediately. And I was like that weird kid who would knit places and people would look at me at like, I didn't know anybody knit anymore, or I thought only grandma's knit. And yes, that old so I've been thing. Doing that my whole life. Yeah. Mm. And um, I just, I think pretty much she planted the seed. And then from there, I just kind of carried that forward myself and did a lot of self teaching and just figuring things out. I didn't have somebody to ask and I didn't know any other knitters at all. And it was long distance to call my grandma if I had a question. So and I'm guessing the internet world. maybe wasn't a thing quite No. Yet. Can you believe there was a time before the internet? Yeah. How did you learn I, anything without YouTube videos? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I mean, like, that's now how I think people learn to do makeup. And that's why all of us look terrible back in the day. Because I didn't know about makeup because I didn't have YouTube. So it's oh a God, miracle. <laughs> makeup <laughs> tutorials for the win. Yes. I'm just going to say, you can learn everything now. And I did not have that luxury. So I was like, just really a lot of experimentation, like trying to see what would work. And if it didn't work, I tried something else until I got it to work. Wow. Look at you learning the old fashioned way. (laughs) I know. I know. That's when you really have to want it. You do. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes you really brave, I think. And it's, you become such a problem solver because you don't have someone else to ask. Mm. And now information is so easy to get that I think sometimes myself included, like will default to just somebody tell me the quick version, like just save me the time. But there's actually a lot of value, I think, in having to figure it out. I totally agree. That's why I used to make people fix their own mistakes when I used to work at the yarn store, even though they weren't always so keen on that idea. Yeah, but it's the best way to learn. It really is. Exactly. Yes. All those mistakes are wonderful learning opportunities. Jim, I'm sure you know that firsthand, right? 100%. I think that this is so interesting because it reminds me of magic and how the experimentation and exploration is part of discovering like what works, like how how does grounding and centering work and where does my... Um, intuition sort of what are the bounds of my intuition and and what can i sense and what can i not and <clears throat> certainly i love the whole idea around fearless you have this uh idea of fearless knitting and mm-hmm. i was just in a conversation as a as a palm reader um people are terrified of um palmistry they're terrified of other things too right, right. and here's this person who's an experienced tarot reader and she is, she, she messages me and she's like, I'm afraid to get my palm read. And I'm like, why? And I, I was curious. I'm like, okay, yeah. what are, what are the things that make you afraid? And she says, I don't really know anything about it. Like I know a lot about tarot and I know a lot about astrology, mm-hmm. but I just don't really know a lot about palmistry. And I'm like, right now thinking, wow, the, what, so I'm curious, do you think that learning and knowing and discovering enough about knitting is that the root of fearless knitting what and talk to me about that whole fearless knitting thing hmm. yeah well first of all i just want to say i can understand that fear about having your palm read i've never had mine read and there is a fear and it's because i watched a movie when i was a kid where someone's like you your lifeline is short and you're going to die soon nobody wants to get that news so they're like, I don't want to know. I'm thinking you're right. Like it's probably not understanding it enough. And with knitting, 
I think it's, it's not so much about not having the knitting knowledge as not understanding how knitting works, like at a foundational level. Mm -hmm. And the fearless thing is really about trusting yourself and knowing that you have enough skills and knowledge within you. Even if you're a beginner, you have the skills to figure things out. Like you will be able to solve a problem if you reach it. And I think one of the problems I see so often in knitting is that we get so used to information being readily available right there at our fingertips. And everything is just black and white, yes and no, left, right, whatever. But what we miss is that there's a lot of nuance and a lot of gray area in creative work, um, probably. And I don't know if that's true for your work as well, but in creativity, it's not always just right or wrong. There's a lot of middle ground. And so, so many of the knitters that I work with, they are nervous to make a mistake they're afraid. What if I try this and it's wrong? And I think some of that's like societal teaching and maybe having totally. had a teacher, right? Who was hmm. like mean to you or yelled at you. I mean, I'm seeing some nodding. So I think that you guys are on the same page. Oh yeah. So my goal and just kind of the foundation of what I do is really to instill that confidence and say, look, it's just knitting. Like no one's going to die unless you stab them with a needle. And so just don't do that. In the eye. <laughs> that's a great point. You'd have to stab them with the needle in the eye yeah. in the, or in the neck. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. or somewhere, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Just, that That's it. So it's, it's fascinating because I'm not currently afraid of knitting, but right. I've only knit two tiny little swatches and I'm on my third, which is my first actual thing I'm knitting, which mm -hmm. is a ribbon for my hat. So it's mm -hmm. actually just like what? 12 stitches wide. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really long. And um, for me, really long. So mm -hmm. it's the very first thing I've actually is a thing, right? I don't know enough to be afraid. In some ways, I'm like, okay, I'm just, everything is in, in just knitting the whole thing, which mm -hmm. is, what's that called again? What kind of fabric? Garter like stitch. stitch. So, oh yeah, it's going to end up being garter stitch, right? I forget mm -hmm. right what it's called. But I think that if I have expectations in the future of like doing this like elaborate color worked, you know, uh, circular scarf with this, uh, you know, pattern mm -hmm. on it, I will be afraid of screwing that up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, certainly the investment of time and resources into a bigger project can make something feel like a bigger deal. But knitting is different than a lot of other crafts in that when we make mistakes, we can pull it out and start over. And it's like no harm, no foul. Mm -hmm. And I think that something you said, Jim, was really valuable because you said you don't know enough to be afraid. And seriously, give me those knitters that are no one told them to be scared. And I think that people think it's hard because someone told them it was hard. And so they uh, go yes. into it with the expectation that it's going to be hard and they're not going to know what to do. And I cannot begin to tell you how often I am supporting people who are just someone told them it was hard. They got to that spot in the pattern and they're like, oh, I know this part's hard. They freak out before they even really read it. And then I explain, no, it's, if you read it, just do exactly what it says. It's not hard. And they're like, oh, well, but everyone was saying it was hard. So I thought I must be missing something. So mm. I think a lot of it is just those messages. And if it's great to not know enough to be scared of it. I, I really wish more people would approach it that way, honestly. Yeah. I, I here, agree. here I am, blank slate. <laughs> yeah. I've taught people to knit in the past, just like you said, who didn't have 
a knowledge of having a fear for anything. And mm -hmm. I remember teaching a friend of mine to make fingerless mitts on double-pointed needles as her like first project, learned to knit on double-pointed needles, making mm -hmm. fingerless mitts with like a gusset, everything. And she did great because I didn't tell her, well, this is advanced. Yeah. <laughs> I just told her, oh, this is what you want. Well, then this is the steps you have to take to do it. And she did it. So, she, yeah. Exactly. It's just, you know, it's what we think our, our minds are really powerful. We can talk ourselves out of anything. And, you know, if nobody tells you it's hard, a lot of people for, you know, brand new knitters knit a sweater with me because they just trust that they can do it. And someone told them you can do it. And it's kind of that same thing. It's like, if you think you can, you can, if you think you can't, you can't. If somebody says, oh, you can totally do it. They will jump in and knit something that is well above their skill level. And they'll just rock it because they have, they just believe that they could. While Marie may not have traditional ties to magical practices like Jim and I, it's clear she's accessing the creative realm through her beautiful knitwear designs. In this clip, we talk about what makes it easier to access this inspirational state and one of the amazing pattern designs that came from being able to access this energy. Our other side of our podcast here is like all about magic and how it sort of ties in with making, um, especially since I've kind of realized at least maybe, and Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like to make magic, you really have to just access your creative imagination. Um, and what better way to make that into a thing than knitting? Um, so I'm kind of curious if you've had like maybe any sort of like quote spiritual experiences or anything that was like really powerful involved with your knitting or making in general? Absolutely. And I think there, like, I couldn't even just pick one or two. I mean, there's so many ways that I think that does connect. And, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's from the inspiration. And I really do feel like it's almost like this creative muse and that inspiration is there. And if you're in the right frame of mind, and you're open, you can kind of pluck that right out of the sky. And it's, uh, and it's interesting that when I'm too busy and I'm too stressed, which is basically all the time, <laughs> but when I don't allow myself to slow down and like notice and be present, I feel less inspired and less creative. And when I give myself white space, um, and I've talked about that on my blog before, and it's something I need to remind myself of because white space, I think allows me to have more of a connection to, um, the creative ethers, you know, mm -hmm. what's there. And, you know, sometimes honestly, it's, it's as simple as running into the perfect person at the perfect moment who needed to learn what I could teach, or I needed to learn from them or that had an opportunity um, one way or the other, that that connection ended up becoming really important. Um, just like our meeting. I mean, we met in a, I mean, you sent me an email kind of cold Turkey, like, Hey, I noticed you're designing with a lot of our yarn can I help support your business? And I don't think either one of us could have imagined that, you know, six years later, this is where we would be right now and that we'd be having this conversation. And so a lot of it comes down to relationships for me, but I think too, it's, it's where the inspiration comes from because I get really inspired when I travel and when I'm in old places where there's a lot of history, I can really, um, I don't consider myself magical, but I, um, to be honest, I don't know that much about it, but I also really feel in tuned with my surroundings. And I think 
Um, I'm sure that's somehow maybe connected, but I feel like I can go places and I really have a strong sense about the place. And I find a lot of inspiration in old buildings and architecture and cemeteries. And I mean, that's really morbid, but I just have gotten so much rich inspiration from um, the past, you know, from and from other you know, types of creative people like who have, you know, architects and bricklayers and, you know, people maybe that don't think of themselves as creative, but it still comes through to me. Yeah. So I, yeah. I can't necessarily pinpoint one experience that was super like magically powerful, but it's kind of as a whole, I think that there is sort of this through line that making is kind of a, almost like a spiritual experience and that, you know, we have to kind of create enough white space that we can, pick up on those signals when they're there. Right. I, you know, you, you say something really powerful and wise, and that is, um, the, the making is a blend of embodiment, imagination, and physical action, right. Mm -hmm. in, in that physical action. So we're bringing those things together and that's very much what happens in magic, we're very present to our physical being and where we're at, the sense of place, our ancestry, our history, our surroundings, mm -hmm. right? There's a sense of mindfulness. Then we're bringing in imagination, what could be, you know, the muse happens and we allow that to be there, right? Then we affect something with our intent, our will in bringing those together and creating something. And I love what that you said that there's a there's a through line. It's a word that I really like because I think there's such an amazing connection between there was nothing and now there's something. And that speaks to what magic is intended to do. And it's also what creativity does, which is the word transformation. I had a sheep buying on a field. Now I have a beautiful sweater I'm wearing, right? Mm -hmm. And there are a series of creative and, you know, uh, imaginative steps that go from a sheep to a sweater, right? Mm -hmm. And just like it, there's a series of, you know, things that go from where I am now to creating a magical intent and getting to where I want to be. Yeah. And do you mean, and I'm curious, uh, not to turn the tables, but can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. <laughs> Um, I'm curious if that, you know, does that translate more like on, um, you know, like bringing thought to form or is it about, you know, literally, cause I think, you know, for most of us who aren't very aware of the world of magic and don't know very much about it, we, we have those memories of like a magician at a birthday party or something like that. And this is this to me, what you're saying sounds so much more um, like intellectual. Uh, I don't know. Like I'm trying to even, I can't even put it into words, but it's like on a, such a deeper level, yes, uh, yes. you know, and really so connected to intention and then like right. bring thought to form. And that's what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yes. Here's, here's something that is, I think a common misperception of magic from the outside Magic is not supernatural. The practice of magic in movies and in illusion magic, mm -hmm. which is the, the which is an form of entertainment, which is totally fun and awesome, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a, a an illusion of supernatural sort of things. Or in movies, there's in fantasies, there's a supernatural idea. Magic that's actually practiced is ultra natural. That's the word I like to use, which is being extraordinarily mindful of where we're at. I can move this object on my shelf using only the power of my mind. And I'm going to do it right now. If you're watching the YouTube video, you will watch this miracle happen. Using only the power of my mind, I'm going to move this geode. (laughs) Here you go, right? So what I did was... Did you see that? I reached, I reached out. If you're just listening, I reached out with my arm, <clears throat> grasped the base of this geode and slid it over on the shelf, right? Okay. So this is magic, right? I had a vision of something that I wanted to do. And by my will, I made it happen. That is just yeah. as magical as anything else. So this is where, when I think that there's a connection between knitting and making and crafts and art of all kinds and magic, I think that it's literal. You are manifesting something out of nothing with your will and your effort. You see something in a skein of yarn that other people don't see. Mm. It's like a sculptor looking at a rock. Exactly. It's funny. I, a couple, I don't know, a few years ago, I designed a sweater that was just these basic stripes, but it was really about the color. Um, But the idea had come from this picture of this concrete wall, like on the way to the beach. And there was this kind of faded aqua paint and then the the bare concrete below. And then it's had like an arrow that said beach this way. And I just saw that one picture and I was like, oh, that would be a great sweater. And when someone asked me about my inspiration for the sweater and I showed them that picture, they were like, I have no idea how you would ever come up with that idea. So it's right. It's really just like, it's like pulling something out of nothing really. And then turning it into something different. That's right. It is magical. In this final moment with Marie, Jim learns all about Marie's annual four day knit along event. If you're not a knitter and have no idea what I'm talking about right now, prepare to have your mind blown like Jim did in this clip. Here I'm seeing something about Knitting a sweater in four days, you got to explain. I don't understand. I know it's, it's so I want to preface it by saying it started as a complete fluke Mm. and as all good things do, right? We, we cannot even plan some of these things to turn out as well. Um, I, so like you, I thought sweaters took a few years typically, um, as I started to build my business, And I had the need to knit things more quickly. I had gotten to the point where I was like, okay, I can whip out a fairly small sweater, fingering weight in about two weeks. Like that would be my like super fast if I'm really committed um, and I don't work on any other projects. um, Don't sleep. Just kidding. I was sleeping. Um, But I could, so I was like, okay, two weeks is about my, my quickest. But then I had a 40 weekend and I was right between projects and I, was like, I really need to knit this sample of mine. I wonder, because it was kind of a little bit heavier weight yarn, um, worsted weight. So Jim, I don't know if you've gotten into the yarn weights yet, but it's a little heavier, a little thicker. And I thought, I wonder if I could knit that in four days, because I have a four-day weekend. And I was like, I, I don't have anything else major planned. It was really unusual. Um, I wasn't traveling. So 
I just, I challenged myself personally just for the heck of it, honestly. And then I told people on social media because I thought that would help me be accountable to myself for the goal. Because if I say I'm going to do it in four days and then I don't and no one knows, it's like, what difference does it make? Mm. But I thought if I tell people I'm going to do it, it'll be embarrassing if I don't um, as a, you know, a personality online or whatever. Mm. And so I shared the progress the whole way. I was like, it's halfway through day one, you know, here, or I've got my yarn wound. I'm just starting and I'm halfway through the day. Here's where I'm at and end of day one. And so I sort of chronicled the experience with photos and on day four, end of day, 10 PM thread still hanging off of it. I finished. And I really actually felt like sharing it with other people is what made me finish it. And it wasn't, I mean, it was a lot of knitting, but it really wasn't as tough as I would, as you would think, like if you're really committed and I mean, I streamed a bunch of audio, you know, videos, Netflix and audiobooks, and ate a bunch of snacks and like, didn't cook any meals the whole time. Um, and so on the end of day four, I, with my phone, I like panned past the, the sweater hanging on a hanger and I played the Rocky theme song and I was like, you know, like I did it. And what I did not expect is that all of these knitters were like, you should have a four day knit along. And I would love to just squeeze the cheeks and kiss the face of whoever said that to me. I don't remember who first suggested it, but someone was like, that should be a knit along. And I was like, would people really want to do that? That's bananas. So I, tried it that year. I mean, I just like a month or so later, we did a four day along for the same sweater and I knew it could be done. And then I really thought that's the end of that. I didn't really think that much about it. Um, but the next year I was working on my first book, Katie, you know, because I had, we discussed a lot of yarn for that book and I was really busy head down. Just, I wasn't putting out much extra content for anyone. And I just had the thought, well, what if I just throw together a really quick four-day knit long? I'll just like whip something up and just for my customers, they'll have something fun to work on. They can kind of cheer for each other while I'm busy writing my book. Um, but what happened, <laughs> that sweater was the beekeeper cardigan and it completely blew up. Huge. I did not have anybody working for me at that point. It was just me. I was trying to write this book in a really short time frame. And all of a sudden I had tens of thousands of people like wanting to knit the sweater. And to be honest with you, like this is, I can't believe I'm saying this full disclosure. (laughs) When I told everyone I was going to do the second one, I hadn't even designed anything. I didn't even know what it was going to be. And then I was like, holy crap, I'm going to have to, okay. Okay. So then I designed something and I'm thinking, I hope they like this because everybody just prepaid to be part of something. And now I have to give them something. And it just thankfully went kind of viral. And I had tons of people participating. And the idea really ended up becoming to knit a sweater faster than you thought you could. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily about the four days. And obviously, it depends on which size you're making. But from there, it really took off. And what's funny, I guess it's that whole um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Because Mm -hmm. now other designers and companies are like, we're doing a four day knit long. And I'm like, you, hmm. I'm like, hmm. wonder who Which inspired that from, but honestly, it's something that we do every year. It's a lot of fun and there's no pressure to do four days, but I'm like, if you really want to challenge yourself, you can do four to about 10, 11 days, depending on your size. Otherwise 
just have fun. We take a whole month to celebrate and do prizes and stuff. So I know it sounds really nuts, but that's how it came to be. You can learn more about Marie, Olive Knits, Knit Camp, and more at olivenits.com. Be sure to sign up for her newsletter while you're there to keep in touch with all the unique offerings, events, and products that Marie has to offer. In episode 17, Magic and Making Collide, we welcome guest Anna Campos, owner of Circle of Stitches, a local yarn store in Salem, Massachusetts. Anna is like the crossroads of Gemini, a beautiful blend of magic and making, as reflected in her shop. In this clip, Anna shares how she became involved in the magical world and how Lori Cabot was a big influence in not only her magical life, but from getting her from Brazil to Salem. This is such a great story. Enjoy. Were you originally from Salem? How did you find your way to this? No, I'm actually originally from Brazil. Oh, That's why my name is Anna and not Anna. Um, <laughs> I was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, when I was a teenager and I bought my first Lori Cabot book in a bookstore at the mall in Brazil, there was the picture of, you know, Lori looking all magical and wonderful on mm. Essex Street in her black robes. And I was like, I'm going to go there one day and I'm going to study with her. And, you know, <laughs> as you do, so, yeah, as you do as a teenager. And, you know, so I just sort of made life decisions that brought me here. Um, when I finished high school back in Brazil, I applied to college in the U.S. I went to college in Connecticut. I moved to Boston for grad school. And then during grad school, I moved a little further north to Salem. So I kind of like made my way in stages up here. Yeah, I'm a third so degree much. Cabot witch. Um, so, you know, I did come and study with her. <laughs> For everyone who doesn't know, Lori Cabot was really big, especially in the 70s. She uh, was a big image in sort of breaking through the, the stereotype of what a witch is and did a lot of work just by being in the public sphere and on television of D... Um, sort of taking this, this stigma away from witchcraft and saying, I'm a real person, I'm a real witch, and I'm not an evil person. I'm not evil, right? Mm -hmm. And so she was on all of the talk shows in the 70s and the 80s and taking her, her attempt to take away the sensationalization of these images of the witch from Halloween and instead showing that like she's a real person. Now, I say that, but also Lori Cabot is a little bit of a sensationalized person herself with her black robes and her like cool hair and her like, she's pretty- and Her she's big a, giant spiral tattoo on her cheek. Ooh, yeah. Right. But you know, she, she became a witch publicly when it was still illegal to practice witchcraft. So she was really paving the way. Wow. And she was, you know, a single mother with two daughters just trying to figure out how she was going to provide for her kids. And so she, you know, that's what she ended up doing. And- you know, when you think about this back in the 60s, that was a lot scarier than now. Yeah. And especially if we think that we're like two generations away from women even being able to like have bank accounts without a man to sign for it. So, you know, like when you think about how close to all that it was, she really did some really amazing things as far as putting herself out there. So then magic came first into your life? <laughs> Uh, well, so honestly, sort of both things. I was always a really crafty child. You know, I was always painting, doing something, making something. Uh, you know, I haven't done just fiber arts. Like I've done oil painting. I've done illustration. And I grew up with an aunt who is an astrologer and a tarot reader. So that was around as well. So I sort of don't remember those things ever not being around. You know, I was, I was 
eight years old when I started crocheting and trying to learn how to knit. And it was at that same age that I got my first tarot deck as well, because I didn't even know what it was, but my aunt said, I read tarot. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I want one. Give me one. (laughs) You like it. I'll take it. Yeah. And so, um, so my aunt told my mom, like, yes, you can buy her one, but make it a small deck. I don't know why, but you know, it was like a little (laughs) mini deck. I still have it. My family's actually Catholic. Um, and so my aunt still considers herself Catholic and considers herself a Catholic witch. And, but she, you know, she does tarot, she does astrology, but she doesn't sort of crap across the religious line, you know, so mm-hmm. to say, but for me, you know, I made an active decision to embrace this as my spirituality. So I, you know, I don't consider myself Catholic anymore. And that's definitely a point of contention, even though we kind of, you know, meet in the middle with the tarot. Yeah. Anna, can I ask, how is it, how did Lori Cabot inspire you? Like, what was it about her? Like, walk us through a little bit of that journey of like, you. how did you see her in Brazil? And what was it that inspired you? Well, so, you know, even though I grew up with tarot and astrology, I didn't have a ton of information outside of, you know, Christianity as far as what your options are. Uh, for how you pursue spirituality. And I, uh, very early on in my life, became very frustrated at the idea that, you know, women couldn't be clergy and that there was kind of a limit to what you could do in ritual space because I loved ritual. You know, I wanted to be an altar girl and I wanted to wear a robe and I wanted to ring the big fancy bell that we have. And like, you know, I wanted to do that. Like the ritual really fascinated me. And just even as a kid, the idea that women couldn't be sacred and that women were lesser than, I was just like, don't know about that you know and so I you know when I started getting more into tarot and and all those things like I learned about chakras so then I started doing chakra meditations and doing this and doing that and uh, you know if resources were limited as far as as media in the U.S. in Brazil there was even less you know Mm -hmm. so I like every bookstore that I walked in I'd find like the tiny occult section and be like what is it like what am I going to buy today so I just studied everything that I could. And, um, you know, Lori's book, I actually, I still have the, the original copy from Brazil. She signed it for me eventually, which, you know, made it <laughs> uh, more special, but like, you know, I found that in the bookstore and the cover was purple, which is my favorite color. So I was already like, Ooh, and it's, you know, it says power of the witch on it. So like, how do you not, you know, like you're like a 16 year old girl, like trying to find your spirituality. And it's like purple book. It says power of the witch. Like, of course I want that. Yes. Right. Right in. <laughs> and, um, but also just, you know, her story of living in Salem openly as a witch and deciding that she could be who she wanted to be. That was really appealing to me. And so coming to Salem always sort of felt like a journey to get to a place where I could just be me. You know, that's really what was appealing. Wow. So she represented what to you? She represented power, obviously the book, right? Yeah, Power, independence, like freedom to be yourself and to like feel empowered as a woman to really kind of, you know, get away from a culture that was oppressive to women in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, obviously I have a complicated history with Catholicism and sexism and whatnot, but growing up in South America, South American culture is also very heavily sexist still there's a lot of machismo and so uh you know there was the appeal of getting out of a culture that was not 
supporting me the way that I needed to, but also sort of getting away from the religious constraints that I had. And so it was just sort of like, you know, that's the freedom. I can go to Salem and I can be a witch and I can do whatever I want. Like that was, you know, and seeing, you know, seeing Lori doing that here sort of gave me a place to go like, well, if she already did it there, then when I go, like, you know, it's going to be a little bit easier because she's Mm. already kind of paved that path. Yeah. Nice. Are you finding, are you finding yourself able to do that? How, how are you finding that you've, what are some of the ways in which you feel like you're achieving some of that? Well, so the interesting thing is that I know that one of the things that you folks want to talk about was, um, you know, what did I think about creating a business that brought together knitting and magic stuff? Like how did I think that would be a successful business? And honestly, like, no, I didn't go into it thinking that's what I was going to do. Um, you know, the funny thing is that people talk to me and they go, oh, your brand, your vision. And I'm like, I am making it up as I go along. Like there was never, there was never like a great big plan. You know, um, I used to work as an architect and I was not happy and I wanted to work for myself. And I, um, used to knit to like de-stress and then I just had too many things. So I started selling them. And then I realized I'm really bad at selling finished pieces. Like I'm not into fashion. So I can't be like, this cowl will transform your life. Like I can't, you know, like that's not my thing. And so I was like, but I understand people who like knitting. So I started writing knitting patterns Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then I started dyeing yarn. And so, you know, it just sort of turned into a thing where I realized like, well, this is what I want to do full time. And so I left architecture, I opened my shop, but the interesting thing in Salem is that I feel like there's very much a divide between sort of like old Salem and new Salem in a way. Like there are people who have lived here a long time. You know, the the townies, unfortunately, they've lived here a long time and they don't necessarily like the way that Salem has grown and changed. And then there is a very vibrant community of, you know, like younger folks who are, you know, who are into witchcraft and came to Salem for that. And there's a very, very welcoming community in that sense, but they're sort of like at odds a little bit. Like we occupy the same space and it's not always perfect. And the thing is I opened a knitting store. So I was like, all right. And, you know, I I was opening a knitting store already knowing some local knitters and they were not witches. And so I was like, all right, I kind of need to make a decision about where, what side of the fence I'm going to fall on. Am I going to be a air quote normal person or am I going to be a witch? And so I just opened a knitting store. Like there was like, there was nothing there about it that was witchier. And then I realized it was really silly because every October my business would tank, um, because my regulars wouldn't come out because it's packed full of tourists, but the tourists would open the door and go, Oh, it's yarn, close the door and leave, you know? Uh, I'm like, no, some of us like yarn. Don't have to say it quite so disdainfully. They'd be like, Oh, yarn, you know, (laughs) you don't sell your finished pieces. Bye. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, they'd be like, oh, well, he sell this. And I'm like, well, it's like $400. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, like, <laughs> but I just realized I was like, you know, people keep coming in here asking me where they can get tarot readings and I'm a tarot reader and I'm not offering that here. And mm. like, I just sort of realized that from a business perspective, I was missing out, but also from a personal perspective, I felt like, why did I leave a corporate job to still pretend that I'm not a witch? Because I don't want to scare away people that aren't witches who are judging. And so I just kind of like let myself get publicly weirder and see what happened, you know, and the reception has been great, but there was never a point that I was like, oh, well, I want to have a witchy knitting store with this and that. I was just kind of like, well, I love tarot and I like working with independent artists. So I started by focusing on um, indie published decks so that I could bring it in as like, here's, you know, work by artists that we can bring in. Cause I was already sort of selling handmade goods. And then it kind of 
went from there. I started teaching workshops that brought together um, crafting and magic. So like ritual embroidery, making spell bottles, like making like handcrafting spell dolls. So I was really trying to find the way to bridge like the handcrafts and the witchcraft. And then it just, you know, like people were, most people were okay with it. There are some people who, uh, you know, sent me some very upset uh, messages with Bible verses about, you know, tarot and how they wouldn't come back. But I didn't leave a corporate job to not be me. So I just, you know, I'm just kind of doing the things that I'm passionate about and hoping that there are other people who feel the same way. In this clip, Anna shares her perspective on how magic and making are a perfect pairing. For her, they've always been closely related, and now her shop is a way to extend this idea to others in a more mainstream way. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting is that you know, a lot of people who come to Salem, they're curious about tarot, they're curious about witchcraft, like they're curious about sort of what they see as a way to have more personal power. But there's always that fear, right? There's that that fear of, oh, witchcraft is evil, witchcraft is demon worship. And, you know, even if people logically don't believe that, like the fear sort of so ingrained, um, my store is actually across the street from, um, you know, a sort of more obvious witch store. And I laugh to myself watching people um, like do the sign of the cross before walking in. And I'm like, you're walking into a store. Like, what do you think's happening? But, um, <laughs> you know, the fact that we, you know, that I offer tarot readings and I do it in an environment that feels sort of less scary, less out of people's comfort zone mean that I have a lot of people who come to me who don't feel quite safe stepping into those spaces yet. So I help people who are maybe feeling a little nervous because I look more air quotes normal. Like I hate saying that, you know, mm -hmm. but I, I look a little more like a person that they can relate to. Like, I don't look like, you know, one of the scarier witches, which is funny because I'm um, one of my friends, um, Tom Peller is like, he does tour guide, like he's a tour guide and he's pretty well known. And he definitely like, he looks like a witch. And so mm. he gets comments on his YouTube channel. And he's like, you look too scary, you know? So like that, you know, no one's afraid to talk to me. And so it kind of gives people a chance to ask questions um, when they might not feel welcome or, or like, it's not yeah. that they're not welcome, but they might not feel safe doing that somewhere else. So that's been, that's been really special to me. Um, I don't know that there's like a specific instance of that, that I can point out, but it's just sort of been, that's been kind of the, like the, the overall vibe, you know, like people will come take a tarot workshop at my shop because, you know, it's bright and there's a bunch of yarn around and they feel safe. It's not a shop where like the walls are all painted black and there's yeah. like herbs and things hanging from the ceiling so that they, you know, like it makes people feel just a little more familiar in my space. And so I'm, I'm glad that I've been able to create this sort of strange, like, you know, liminal space that my shop is, it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a sort of a weird in between thing, but it, it helps people sort of step over that threshold that might not do it otherwise. And I've of course been really delighted to see how many people um, do love both, you know, like mm -hmm. every time that I get an online order and it's yarn and tarot together, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> you know. Talk to us about your perspective on that crossover. I think it all makes sense because, you know, obviously the name of my shop circle of stitches is a play on circle of witches, which is funny because there are people like, I'll say that offhand. And then someone who's been coming for three years went, I never noticed. I'm like, you've been coming here for three years. How did you like, really? You know? Um, but I think that it all falls under sort of this umbrella of um, mindfulness and sort of sacred community, 
right? Um, in, in, you know, in times where spirituality was less patriarchal, um, you know, gathering spaces for women were a lot more common and there was sacred space for women and there was intentionality around gathering with elders and passing down of information, right? Like menstrual huts and, you know, doulas. And so like there were like women used to spend time with different generations and sharing in that. And modern life has completely eliminated that. And so where do you get that? Knitting circles, right? That's where Mm. women sit and do that and gather. And to me, that gathering of women of multi-generations, that to me is a core part of witchcraft. And so even though people sort of don't see it, like that's not how people, like when people are coming, that's not what they're thinking. To me, that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of like, "Eh," like, you know, we're like all here sharing energy and exchanging and doing sort of that sacred gathering that, that, you know, isn't really available anymore. And so I, I really think that, you know, knitting is a vehicle for mindfulness. I think it it is absolutely sort of the perfect palette for spell work. And so I I really do think that all these things just like make sense together, at least for me. Keep in touch with Anna and Circle of Stitches at circleofstitches.com, where you can also sign up for her newsletter. In episode 25, Crafting with Bones, we welcomed an expert guest, root worker and bone thrower, amongst other things, Auntie Cindy Toto. Auntie Cindy shed light on cleansing, root working, and what crafting with bones represented to her. As someone who loves working with natural materials myself, including bones and teeth, I was very interested in what she had to say on this subject. Check it out. Part of, I think the biggest part of being a, a, a root worker and a conjure worker is knowing effective cleansing. Mm. And effective cleansing carries over to all your work. So if you don't effectively know how to cleanse or cleanse a person and them follow your directions, then, you know, you, you, that's how your work's going to work. You got to start with cleansing. Usually always, I don't know how I get off on this tangent, but <laughs> I think <laughs> I that's have a amazing. strong foundation. Yes. It's, yeah. it is the foundation. Well, you got to start with a clean house. I mean, isn't that what all totally. of Every time we see one of those shows where they're like, I want to redo my house. I want to redo my kitchen. You got to start by cleaning the house and cleaning the kitchen Mm -hmm. before you paint it or remodel it or do anything that you want to improve. It always starts with the cleaning. And that's true of our bodies. It's true of us spiritually. It's true of us psychologically. I got to like clear the stuff before I can build something new. Right. That's right. And you know why I've always said, especially if you have something nasty going on and you just, and things ain't right. And you're just a mess. The best thing you can do is get on your knees in front of the toilet and clean it mm-hmm. <laughs> right. and get all and talk everything out into that toilet and flush that sucker down. And that's how you're going to move. You're going to shift a whole lot of energy real fast in your Ooh. environment, clean the toilet. Get your poop in a group. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. But isn't that true? Like sometimes you just need a good cry or if you went out last night, sometimes you just need to like purge yourself and then you just feel better. Mm -hmm. Well, think about how you feel when you're, when you actually are sick and you have to be on your knees in front of the throne Mm -hmm. and you do cry and you feel real crappy and your whole body just lets loose because it's out of control. Right. Mm -hmm. 
it's the same thing. If yeah. you kind of go into that zone, but this way you're really cleansing it, cleaning at the same time, you're going to have some effective um, energy purge. Right. Yeah. And that really is, I mean, we use the term like, I was heaving from my bones. I was sort of like, mm. you know, crying from the bottom, from my, from the, my core, from my bones. Right. Mm. So if we, right. think about, I, I think about that and like the topic of today is really thinking about how our bones and bones and how they're magical. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, we wanted to bring you in because I know that you work with, I have some experience also in magic with bones and Katie is going to talk about the, about the connection between bones and crafts and crafting. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about bones and the craft, <laughs> but what's your, your connection with bones, Cindy, Auntie Cindy, how do you work with bones in your practice? What is, and do you have an idea? What is your perspective on what bones represent? Mm. I have an well, idea too, but I'm curious what your perspective is. Um, there, I have, there's several mediums, of, if you will, or, or that I like to tie into all my work. And it's feathers, bones, keys, teeth, and railroad spikes. <laughs> Ooh. Now I know that's not all sounds like what a hodgepodge of stuff. But in fact, when I build any kind of work um, and anything that I'm making or that I've created, it's going to have usually all those things, those pieces in it. Mm. So bones for me, first of all, kind of um, your every bone that you touch and every bone that you that you use, you're connecting to the spirit of that bone, of that creature, of that animal, or that person, or that whatever, you know, part it is. And you, and the whole piece of it is the bone will talk to you if you're so inclined to listen or know how to work with them. So when I first started throwing bones, for instance, and got my bone set to throw, and I had never, I was like, whatever, I never knew, of, you know, knew about bone throwing. I'd already, I'd done stuff. And my friend Star actually turned me on and she said, and it was 6 a.m. one morning early. We were at a, doing a, a big deal workshop thing in New Orleans, which we did every year for a long time. And we're, the old gals were up early. So I had, I had this set of bones she had given me the year before, but I'd never activated it, gone into it. And she goes, and I said, I'm going to get these bones and let's talk about it. So I got the bones out. We started talking about it. She starts telling me all this stuff. And that day, I completely flipped over and started reading with bones because they were just like, yuck, 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 yuck. Here's what this means. Here's what that means. Here's how you look at it. Here's how you read. And it was so easy in a way. It's my own way. Now, there are people who, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Because there are people Mm -hmm. who are learned Oh my God, they've studied it. They've go, they know I don't, and this is not me. I just let the bones talk to me and tell me what I need to hear. Yeah. And then at the same time with your spirit. So if I'm reading you, first of all, I'm going to connect with to you real hard and I'm going to call you in. Yeah. And then 
all of that transfers and then boom, it lays out. Right. Like that. You've seen me do this a million times. Yes. So to, to describe it to people. So throwing the bones is a collection of bones, little bones and trinkets that are in either a bag or a box. And the we and the reader will take this collection, sort of shake it around. They'll cleanse it in a certain way. People, different people have different ways of doing it. And then they'll mm-hmm. cast it. So they'll, they'll, throw the bones or they'll toss them into a large bowl or a large dish or on a, or on a sacred uh, fabric or a piece of leather. I've seen it done many ways, perhaps on a table or a surface and then how the bones and trinkets drop, how they interact and interlock and touch each other and their distance from each other will mean something. And then what Auntie Cindy will do, she has a picker, a little like pointer piece, Mm -hmm. and she'll pick through the bones and sort of point at them. And so perhaps the jawbone is touching the, um, you know, one like cat bone. And she'll say, oh, this means someone's talking about you. And this means something else. And over here, (laughs) and maybe the maybe there's a little dice um, and the die is up on the seven and she's like, Oh, lucky seven is up. And so this means you got some luck going on and maybe the good fortune symbol is there. And she says, this is really fortunate for you. And so uh, what is ever speaking to her from your spirit and the spirit of the bones, and they're just in her mind and it occurs to her. So to get the picture of it, um, that that picture of it is a really it's it's visually beautiful and amazing to see all of the little trinkets that are there as as someone who's had their bones read by Auntie Cindy. For me, it is you're sort of like drawn into the bones and like you're I'm just in I'm fascinated <laughs> and everything else in the room vanishes. And all I hear is Auntie Cindy's voice. And I see all the bones and all the trinkets and how they're interlocked. And it's fascinating. It is the coolest experience to get. I mean, I just can't praise. I can't speak it up enough. It is the coolest experience to have Auntie Cindy read, do a bone reading for you. Oh, my gosh. I want the sound, <laughs> the sound of the bones, like shaking around in the bag and then being cast down the the sight of the bones mm. the smell of the of the rum as she's like purifying it the incense it's amazing so this is what it so if you're watching here you go oh. if you, this is when you want to be watching yeah so it's a these right here system essentially Pardon me? Just, it's a it's really a divinatory system like runes or tarot or anything yeah. absolutely different so cool yeah, this so you know my base set of bones uh, is are these thirteen, and these are um, these are raccoon bones, mm-hmm. and then and this right here um, is a raccoon jaw bone, and then I got I've got all kind of little stuff. I'm these are some big old moose uh, knuckle bones, and every and then you got like a bone dice and. I have to have an alligator paw because that's me. And I have to have a snake vertebrae. And I'll show y'all some more of that later. But this is kind of just, I, I just grabbed some off my stuff. And then this is my black cat bone that was also from my friend Star and a real blessing bone to have because this is, is about luck and protection when it's thrown on top of stuff. Oh. So there's kind of that. But I throw on um, my daddy and my father-in-law's white handkerchiefs Mm. and i've always thrown on them because 
they both love me very much. And when I call in their spirit to ground me to when I'm doing this, boom, it's right there. So people throw in a lot of stuff. You can get real elaborate, but I've always used their handkerchiefs. And um, yeah, so that's why. Real simple. There's so much love in it and it's awesome. In this last clip, Auntie Cindy shares ways that she's worked with bones and teeth using her favorite medium, railroad spikes. She also shares how she might incorporate bones into a knitting project, which I found very inspirational. Hopefully you will too. I'm really interested in why you think someone should turn to a bone option as opposed to especially like a plastic option um, for crafting in, in any kind of case. Wow. Well, um, well, one, if you're, whatever you're making, you know, I, I see for me, anytime I'm crafting anything, I'm conjure crafting. Mm. So in fact, I used to have conjure crafter noons <laughs> and me and, and my spirit brother would sit and we would literally conjure craft what we were making for whatever purpose. So let's say you're knitting something and I could easily see where, because tying knots are a big thing in conjure work. So I could see where as you're knitting in, you're also knitting in a bone. And like, let's say you, let's say you have, and this is. Show us that box. Show us that box. You can get these. So let me describe. Cindy just, Auntie Cindy just opened a great big box and it's full of ribs and vertebrae. From rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes. Which is so fun. And so. You can, the cool thing about these guys is they're little vertebrae. They have little holes, right? And you can string this together. String the rib through the vertebrae. You could knit through the vertebrae, right? And you, and what this would do would be helping someone, or if you were in the, whatever you're making, could be to help them for strength and flexibility, So let's say, so spinal work. So think about how you're trying to help somebody like here is a, here's a picture of a railroad spike that I did with all snake vertebrae. So it's a railroad spike and on the outside of it is attached all kinds of bones of, of snake vertebrae sort of hanging all around it. You can barely tell that it's a railroad spike inside there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, and of course the railroads, a railroad spike is my canvas. So I use railroad spikes. I can do anything on a ra- glue anything. I'm just a nut about a railroad spike. Mm. Same way with teeth. So you can do, here's one with teeth oh, and chains. I also love teeth. Love teeth. Yes. I mean, I've you'd had my dentist. I'd go, please save me teeth. <laughs> I got a fight uh, with one of my dentists about how he would not give me my teeth. And I was very upset about it. Oh, man. I yeah. just went to oral surgeon. And he was talking about how he his some of his sisters want a container of teeth. And I said, sign me up. I want some. Yes, I'm going to hit him hard. But these little vertebrae, these little ribs, um, Katie, would be fabulous. And they are, they hook in really nice. Oh. So you could take any piece that you create and you could make um crossroads and and stuff yeah weave them in i think it'd be killer to do that and um so snake verbra is really a lot of fun and they're good to do mixed in with um with other items like 
So here's, here's, um, during COVID I had, um, I was all making, I was, I was like, okay, I ain't working a lot. So I'm going to start, got to get all my crap out. And the whole dining room was full of stuff because I started crafting stuff and I decided to make healthcare workers. And so I would read what was going on the week that this was happening. And every week, so all my, all these particular railroad spikes have, they all have little blue surgical hats on, like a tie do, you know, around their head, their head wraps. So they look like they were healthcare workers. They all have, um, usually up front, right under them is a, uh, a little medal of Mother Mary, because I'm a big Mother Mary, of course, you know, helps us with anything that's to help things change. And they all had, I do kind of various hanging down. They all have wings. They have Palo Santo arms because you can burn the arms. See, you can light the arms to help cleanse. And then the whole, that's part of the way that the work works. So when whatever week this one, and I wrote down why this one was made and the, the bones. This one has all kind of keys on it and scissors and clocks like it was time for change. I think this was right towards the end. So I did like 13 of these. So every month or we I can't even remember. Um, I did one on Floyd, uh, when um, George Floyd died. I did one on Black Lives Matter week. I did one on Pride week. I did one on we I had three people pass each week that these people passed. I did a prosperity one, but they're all, they all incorporate some type of bone in it for sure. Learn more about Auntie Cindy at totomojo.com. And you can always reach out to her for a reading at totomojo at gmail.com. Additionally, if you happen to be in the Seattle area this weekend, you can find her and Dolly Madison performing at the Admiral Pub in West Seattle on Saturday, November 20th. Attendees will enjoy amazing DJ music, short readings by Cindy, and a ton of fun. Cindy will likely be there from about 9 to 11. However, remember, you can always reach out to her again at totomojo at gmail.com to schedule a reading whenever it might fit in your schedule. What a special episode this was. I know I've had a ton of fun looking back through the archives and remembering all the amazing times we had with our fabulous guests so far. Looking forward to another year of amazing guests ahead. If I missed one of your favorite moments from our guests, please feel free to drop me a line at knitaspellpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find all sorts of information about Jim at thedivinehand.com, where you can also buy an amazing gift card for a palm reading, you know, for someone in your life who you might love, who would also be interested in getting an amazing experience. Guess what? There's no backstock on gift cards from thedivinehand.com. Also, there's no back order on any digital patterns at Light from Lantern, so feel free to check out my offerings there and on Ravelry. Thanks again for joining us, everyone, for this awesome recap episode, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, new episodes of Knit a Spell are conjured every Wednesday. Learn more at knitaspell.com and follow our Instagram page at knitaspell. If you have a quick second to support the show, feel free to drop us a review on iTunes or share this with a friend. Jim and I appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you next week.